if you're an owner of IP, oftentimes that IP may be the most valuable thing that you then have. But does it always make sense for you to then be the ones that produce it? Of course, there's unique examples of this, right? I think Disney is a company that clearly does both. But Disney is such a unicorn in what it does in so many ways. And we've all seen that flywheel that of what they've done. And that flywheel is so relevant because it's hard to see another company that could really do that to that level. But it's more likely than not that if you are an IP owner, it does, it's probably in your best financial interest to partner with a company that you can leverage their production because they are skilled at being a production company to do that thing. Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcie. This podcast is your place to gain insights from the executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip-hop culture to the next level. From you, the listeners who make Trapital exactly what it is. So this is a mailbag question where you all sent in your best questions. Some of you emailed them, some of you posted them on socials, but I looked at the questions and picked the best ones, and this is a mailbag episode. It's been a while since we did one of these, so it felt good to do one. I actually want to do these more often just because I think the questions were really great and we're able to address a bunch of topics that we'll get into. AI, the future of music, globalization, ownership, and all the topics that we love to break down on Trapital and a few new ones. So let's jump in. Today's episode of the Trapital Podcast is brought to you by MoonPay. MoonPay is the leading Web3 infrastructure company trusted by major crypto brands and millions of people worldwide. MoonPay is your portal to Web3, a reimagination of the internet where you can transact with peers globally and own your digital identity. MoonPay makes it fast and simple to jumpstart your Web3 journey. Quickly use your debit or credit card to buy and sell crypto and purchase digital collectibles. Visit moonpay.com slash to get started. All right, today we have our one and only mailbag episode from Trapital. It's been a while since we did one of these. I feel like maybe at some point earlier this year we did a mailbag, so it was finally good to dig back in, hear from folks, and be able to answer the questions that a lot of you have been thinking. This podcast has grown quite a bit this past year. Uh, it was in the 1% for the most shared podcast, according to Spotify rap, so that was pretty good. Some applause for that. And I wanted to bring in some of the questions from some of the avid listeners and readers we have. So I posted in social media, posted in the newsletter, and this is a roundup of the best ones. Covered a bunch of topics. We're going to talk about the future of AI and music, state of NFTs, globalization, ownership, and a whole lot more. So let's dive into the first question we have here. So Ken Penn wants to know, what is the current state of music NFTs, and are major labels as interested in them as they were before? So first, for some clear context, a lot of people have been asking questions about this because 
the general trends of NFT discussions from last year to this year is not quite what you would expect. A lot of people saw that Bloomberg report that came out earlier in 2022. I think they said NFT transactions were down 97% from the peak that they were at in 2021. And if you type in the word NFTs in Google Trends, you'll probably see a slope that looks quite downward. That is very true, and that's clearly where that is. But I think there's a big difference between that, which I think 97% of that was the hype and a lot of the crap that you likely would only see at the height of the pandemic when money was flowing like crazy. Think about the time when like pet rocks were being sold and Logan Paul was buying his NFTs or trying to sell his NFTs for whatever. If that was the top of the market, then I think we're seeing things level off a bit more now because you are still seeing partnerships from the major labels and from a lot of artists themselves. I look at Warner uh, Music Group. Warner's been active, more active than any other major label, I think, when it comes to active investments and being forward-looking and being public about those investments. And it was just six, seven weeks ago that they had formed a partnership with OpenSea, which is one of the largest platforms out there to be able to trade and uh, as a marketplace to be able to buy and sell NFTs. So you have that. You also have other deals that we've seen. Um, Universal Music Group recently hired two SVPs that are focused on Web3 with a pretty strong focus on NFTs themselves. And more broadly, you have companies like Public Pressure that just raised $6 million to continue to build in this space. I have said this a few times in this podcast, but I think that Web3 and NFT specifically, you had to get through the dot-com era. You had to get through that pets.com phase of people just starting shit because it sounded like it was something that was going to resonate. But after a lot of that didn't work out, you obviously had the dot-com bubble burst. That era still gave us Google. It still gave us Amazon and all these other companies that have still continued to be successful and be some of the biggest companies in the world today. And I think there is a very strong chance that we will still have that with this current wave. It may look slightly different in music, but I still think that we're going to see and we have seen more of the true opportunities, whether it's on the artist side of artists that are selling actual NFTs that their fans would find valuable and that others would want to buy into as well. And I think you'll see this on the major label side with more investment going into acts that can actually reap the rewards from it. One of the biggest deals of 2022 when it comes to NFT sales was Snoop Dogg and what he was able to do just capturing that momentum after the Super Bowl. We wrote, or I covered a lot of this in the culture report that Trapital, re that Trapital put out. We'll include a link to it in the show notes if you haven't checked it out yet, but still a lot of upside on NFTs. I do not see it quite as much as the bubble that I think was clearly there in 2021. A lot of that quarantine rapid growth needed to calm back down a bit. And I think NFTs are one of the areas that were hit a lot harder than others. But I still think that there's plenty of upside for people that actually want to build and don't just want to do grift or whatever the hell else people were trying to buy and sell at the time. Another question here is from David from Santa Monica. And this was actually a reply to a newsletter that I recently put out where I was talking about some of the cost challenges that certain music startups and music tech companies will face as in regards to working with customers and customer service and working and dealing with unprofitable customers and wanting to move further up market. Question was whether or not I had any data on the customer service costs that these companies have. And I want to answer that question in a slightly different way because 
it's less about customer service in the same way that, you know, you or I may go call Comcast or may call Xfinity when we're having an issue with our cable or our internet, but it's more so you are a client or customer that is trying to use this particular service, whether it's free or you're relying on it to grow your own business and you are now having some challenge or you're having some type of question. The thing is, a lot of the companies, especially a lot of the distribution platforms, they started out being being available to everyone, but I think they realized how expensive it is to serve the clients and to serve the customers who are not driving the most business possible. It's no different than a lot of people see when they're working with client services overall. Your $2 million clients in a lot of ways can be so much more enjoyable to deal with and work with than your $2,000 clients. Your $2,000 clients will try to nickel and dime. They have a bunch of questions about this, that, and the third. But your clients that have a bit more money can actually, they normally come in a bit more clear and confident with what they're looking for and it can lead to better business in the long run. And I think to a lot of extent, the same is true with a lot of the artists that you end up serving or a lot of the customers that a lot of these platforms end up serving because a lot of their time gets spent with customers that just don't justify the ROI of how much it costs to have that person on staff continue to work and continue to coach and work directly with someone who's just not generating enough revenue to be able to justify the spend. And if you think about how a lot of the companies focus on these things, especially if you're being built out like a tech company, Customer success, this is a role where at that, whether even at the high individual contributor or the middle level manager role, you're talking, you know, $150,000, $200,000 plus for someone that can do that role on an annual basis. I mean, I'm thinking of myself as six years ago at this point, I was offered a, a customer success role from a startup that is, you know, now been acquired, but I believe the offer was right around that 150 or maybe it was a little bit more than that K range. And that's how much you're paying to have one person that is dedicated to not just you, but to other clients. But if you were to fractionalize my time, let's say that I, you know, was someone that was making 160K a year and I had 12 to 16 clients per year that I was serving, you have to justify, okay, is it worth 10K of the company's time to be able to continue to serve this person if that's what I'm spending my time on. And we all know that it's less likely that it's going to be an even split. So that's where these things I think can often come into play, which is why I think you've seen a lot of the distribution services and a lot of the others start to be more selective over time. And they start to have cutoffs in terms of who they're willing to serve and who they're not willing to serve. And that's one of the reasons why I think we see that shift where, especially in music distribution, it ends up leaning itself towards just having a low cost option, like a Distro Kid or TuneCore, which it essentially doesn't cost much at all to upload the services, but it's a bit more do-it-yourself. Or you get something that is a bit more boutique, but by being able to join the boutique offering, it's much more selective as a result. So the next question here is from Arthur from Twitter. He didn't specifically say his name, but um, it was a good question here. He asked, who gets more blame for the lack of consistent superstar acts, labels or customers? The answer is neither. The answer is technology. If you're trying to blame anyone, I personally don't call it blame. I more so call it the driving factor, but this is more about technology. Technology was the driving force that lowered the barriers to entry for artists to be able to create more music than they've ever created and to be able to release it the way that they've done it. And because they're releasing music the way that they've done it, 
it then becomes harder and much more noisier for new artists to be able to enter the scene and be able to hit the same heights that they did. And because of the increased number of options that are there, it makes it even easier for the powers that be to continue to invest more in what they already see proven, whether that is your superstar artist or ones who have already proven themselves that seem like they'd be most likely to be the next, next bets, whether that's your Taylor Swift or your Adele or your Beyonce on the proven side or on the artist coming up, whether it's someone like a Olivia Rodrigo or like a Blast or Billie Eilish or someone like that. So these are things that are, I think, a big factor just based on where things are and barriers continuing to be lower and lower. And there's been countless reports on just how difficult it is and how record labels are starting to feel like it's having a harder time to break new stars in the way that they once did. It's harder to have new superstars reach the levels that they did. I think you see this in some of the analysis that's been done on charts and stuff like that too. It's a lot of the same names that have been household names for over a decade that are continuing to stay there. And it's harder for the new artists to really come through. So I guess if there's anyone to blame for that, we can blame the the founders and the product managers from the companies that enabled the barriers to entry to happen in the first place. But I know a lot of people disagree. I do think it's a good thing that people have more options than ever, just in terms of the artist's perspective, but just because I think that it brought a lot of flexibility. But with that, there's always trade-offs like any new technology brings. There's good with that. There's bad that come with that. I do think that the pros and the cons outweigh them. I do think that the pros do outweigh the cons with that, but I'm still very aware of the downsides of the current dynamic. This next question is from Joe Edwards, and he asked, what is the ultimate potential of GPT-3? This is a hot topic right now, I think, for a lot of folks, and it's a question that I think everyone from record labels to attorneys to emerging artists are trying to figure out, but here's my perspective. I think that GPT-3 is a great tool that will be able to give songwriters an extra tool that they can have by their side. I think we recently heard Bruce Springsteen on a podcast talk about how he could use AI, whether it's something like something that can help jog his memory or, or jog his thoughts specifically if he's having a bit of writer's block and how difficult that can be for a songwriter. You just want to be able to have a few things that can aid your, your, your process of bringing thoughts together. I don't think the pen that comes from that would ever truly replicate something that Bruce Springsteen would want to put out himself, but just given how advanced these tools get and how better and better they get, it's likely going to provide some inspiration that can be helpful. I still, that said, I think it would be more helpful to help existing artists. And I'm a bit less bullish right now on new artists coming up. I think we all saw what happened with Capitol uh, Records and um, FN Mecca and that whole mess of, while I don't think that that's all AI driven, part of that's driven by the people that were running it. I do think that that is a inherent challenge that some people may be a bit wary of, at least for now. But one place that I do think that AI and GPT-3 specifically could be unique for is for giving certain artists or certain people the ability to access a sound catalog or the ability to access a group of songs that they can use to then scour to figure out what they can then glean from that to be able to create the new songs that are able to create lyrics that they could use in the future. The reason I highlight this is because I'm sure if you're trying to use a song that is based on a song that is owned by a major record label, the record labels and their lawyers will 
come after you. And it is something that I know that is already top of mind for them. But there's a lot of music out there, a lot of music that people would want to hear that isn't owned or controlled by the major record labels. And I think in the same way that you saw platforms like Epidemic Sound or Splice and others be able to create, whether it's monthly subscriptions or other types of opportunities to buy access to a right to use any of the songs in the catalog, I think you can see something very similar to that happening with AI and GPT-3 specifically, because yes, if GPT-3 tries to scour all of the songs available, that is a legal nightmare. But if you're an artist and you want to be able to pay $10.99 a month or whatever it is to be able to access this tool where you could type in any prompt that could help spur your thought, that could be a very great use of 1099, especially if that gives you the ability to make the next album from your bedroom that could be nominated and win a bunch of Grammys or sell or, you know, do a bunch of commercial success or just have enough success for you to be a standalone successful musician in your own right. Because I do think a lot of those things are likely to appeal more so to independent artists. I also think that we'll see some potential with GPT-3 with an artist that breaks out on TikTok in general, I almost feel like it's inevitable that there's going to be some artist in 2023 that has some song that goes viral on TikTok and people are going to be like, oh, where did the idea for the song come come from? And the artist is going to say, oh, I just typed in a prompt, write me a song about XYZ and here's what came up. Because we already started to see little hints of how artists would use name generation or using tools to come up with things, right? You saw, you've all heard the story about how Lil Nas X used insights from Reddit and insights from Twitter to create Old Town Road and how he essentially engineered that song to reach the type of success that it did. Granted, a lot of that was outside of his influence, just given things going viral after the whole country music controversy. But a lot of the things leading up to that point were influenced by him. And I think even on a more simpler side, Artists like Childish Gambino and Post Malone, I'm pretty sure that both of them got their names from some random computer generator. So there's been things like that that we've seen, and I think we'll continue to see more of that. And I think even the answer to this question is going to continue to evolve. So you could ask me this question in a year. I think I could probably have this as an end of the year uh, podcast question for some time now, and there will always be something new to glean from it. The next question here is from Mercedes G. She wants to know, why don't artists prioritize ownership, even though artists have been pushing ownership for decades? So this question is a bit nuanced because I do think that there are a lot of, there are a lot of artists out there that do push ownership, and they are clear that they want to be able to own their masters and own their publishing and understand the value in that. I think the challenge comes, though, when it becomes a trade-off. And that trade-off is likely offering the artist something that they couldn't have otherwise had. Because owning your masters and owning all those things sounds great. And it sounds great if we assume that the artist could have reached the same heights that they could without giving up something in exchange. The thing is, when an artist is starting to pop and they are already experiencing what some of the challenges are of being able to really hit that next level and whether that is something that they want to do, because of some of the things I answered with earlier questions with more and more music coming out, it's harder for everyone to break out. It's especially harder for artists that are already signed to record labels to break through. That means it's going to be even harder for an artist that doesn't have the major label resources behind them to break out as well, 
which could make them even more likely to want to then sign with a major record label, especially if they are cutting you a check. I'll look at a few examples of younger artists as well. Look at an artist like Lil Durk or even NBA Youngboy. I'm pretty sure Lil Durk had posted that he had gotten a $40 million deal recently this year. And I think Dirk is someone that, it, that, has, been, that has been popular. I mean, it's several years ago at this point that he was on XXL's freshman list. But even as an independent artist, it could have taken him quite a bit of time to ever hit that amount of money, especially if he's trying to cash in on the moment that he has. So it's one thing to push ownership, but it's another thing to still be able to say, you know what? No, I'm good. I don't want that check. Let me continue to do what I'm doing. When someone offered you an eight-figure check that's right in front of you, and I think there's a bit of that like human element that can sometimes get a bit lost because it's easy for the people in the peanut gallery playing Monday morning quarterback to go say, oh, why would you do that deal? Or us to focus on some of the survivorship stories of Master P turning down a million dollar record label deal from different people that may have offered it to him. Because for every success story like Master P, there are other people that turn those same type of deals down that but it didn't take off the way it did for P. And then they go back to the record label and be like, oh, hey, can I still get that deal? And the record label's like, no, like the moment passed. And the only reason you're coming to me is because you don't feel like you have the momentum that you had before. So there's a few factors here that I think are important to consider. And there is that human element that I think just changes when it's one thing to be a Twitter pundit and put your thoughts out there, but it's another thing to really still say no when a company that, you know, they're rolling out the red carpet for you, they're show, they're presenting the seven, eight figure check, whatever it is, and then you still say, no, I'm good. And then I think you even see this at the highest levels as well. I mean, you look at the deals that, you know, someone like a Drake or, or, or the weekend are, they may be getting, I mean, you're more so hitting now into the nine figure deals and these artists are more likely to be able to continue to have ownership, but they're still licensing their masters or licensing their music out to the major companies. So there's still some trade-off there. It's very rare that you ever are really seeing the superstar artist that still is hitting those superstar artist levels that is like, you know what, I'm good. Let me just go release everything independently. Because I think at the end of the day, if you are a priority on these labels and if you are still getting the best that you can get, you're more likely to figure out, okay, what trade-off is commensurate at what level. And that doesn't mean there isn't a better way that it could be done optimally. My explanation here is more of an explanation of the entire landscape and less of an advocacy for one position or another. But I do think in general, just given how much harder it is for record labels to be able to truly, I think, focus and invest on that artist development piece because they're expecting artists to come to them when they've already hit zero to 60. I think it really puts the onus on the artist to be like, okay, are you happy at 60? Because if you're happy at 60, you may not need the record label. And maybe you think you could get to 70 or 80 yourself, but it may take some time. But if you're trying to get to 100, it's going to be really hard for you to do that independently. So a lot of it requires some internal questioning on where you want to go, how far you want to go, and why that may or may not be as important to you. Today's episode of the Trap Little Podcast was brought to you by Revolt. Revolt is on a mission to curate and share the best of the best in hip-hop, culture, and social justice. You may remember a couple months back, I had the CEO of Revolt, Otavio Samuel, on the podcast, and he talked all about the mission and where things are going, and I think this is one of the 
leading companies that is elevating what's happening in black culture. It is launched by Sean Diddy Combs back in 2013 and the multi-platform network offers breaking news, videos, artist interviews, exclusive performances, and original programming. They have content for everyone like asset over liabilities and original podcast with the hosts of Earn Your Leisure that gives you behind the scenes look into the business investments of artists like Soulja Boy and Rick Ross. They also have The Drop, Revolt's weekly newsletter and curation of the latest in hip-hop and black news. And they have The Black Print, where Natavio sits down with innovators and change makers, laying the groundwork for the next generation for the culture. You can learn more and sign up for Revolt's newsletter, The Drop, at revolt.tv. All right, this next question here is about a specific deal that's going on, but it's just going to be a good one to answer. JB from Atlanta asked, now that Hasbro has sold E1's TV and film division, could quality control be a potential buyer? So a few things to unpack here. Earlier in November, Hasbro announced that it will be selling its TV and film divisions of the company. Note that this news three years after Hasbro had initially acquired all of Entertainment One, which included its music division. And then I think it's been about a year now, my time may be off, but it's been about a year plus now that it had rolled off its music division, which then became Monarch, which is run by Chris Taylor and that team. Uh, you may remember them because they were the team that was involved with the, the selling and the acquisition of Death Row Records and then that deal with Snoop Dogg. But Hasbro overall has kind of been in this, oops, maybe we shouldn't have done this deal when they went and bought E1. And I think the big takeaway for Hasbro has been that if we want to leverage the IP that we have, and as many of you know, Hasbro toy company, so it has the IP there, but it also has some brands that were in that production, like Peppa Pig and things like that. They can still own the IP, but they don't have to own the in-house production to be able to then leverage that IP and make it happen. And then when you own those divisions, it just can be so costly to try to do that. So they got a lot of pressure from Wall Street and other analysts to sell that division and focus on what they do. If you're an owner of IP, oftentimes that IP may be the most valuable thing that you then have, but does it always make sense for you to then be the ones that produce it? Of course, there's unique examples of this, right? I think Disney is a company that clearly does both, but Disney is such a unicorn in what it does in so many ways. And we've all seen that flywheel that of what they've done. And that flywheel is so relevant because it's hard to see another company that could really do that to that level. But it's more likely than not that if you are an IP owner, it does, it's probably in your best financial interest to partner with a company that you can leverage their production because they are skilled at being a production company to do that thing. So that was a lot of the reason why that sale has happened in the first place. Now, let's talk about the QC part of this. I would be very surprised if quality control was to go on and buy a TV and film division because I also look at quality control as an IP owner. I mean, they technically, I mean, just given the ownership structure, they may join own some of that with Motown, given the joint venture there, but they are IP owners that can then use that to leverage whether it's the brand or the story of your little baby, Migos, and even the rise of Coach K and P and, and things like that. And while QC does do investments, like I know they're involved with SoundCloud and they have a few other things going on, I would be very surprised if they went on to go then acquire a type of you know studio themselves. I know that QC does have a film division, but my impression of that has always been more so, yeah, let's 
acquire, let's have that something that we could have that small and manageable in-house. But if they still have a big release, I think they would probably want to go to shop that and market the same way that any other big time producer would want if they wanted to push something further. No different than I think you kind of saw with the little baby documentary that eventually went on Amazon and was released on Amazon Prime a couple of months ago. So I would be surprised there. If anything, I mean, I think QC is one of these record labels that may be looking for an outside investor itself, but I'm not quite sure what the Motown relationship, just given the joint venture ownership there and how that may look, whether or not who it, who the actual company is that owns, whether it's the brand or the artist or anything like that moving forward from that perspective. All right. A couple more questions here. So is music investing specifically like in catalogs, is music investing still a good idea in 2023? And my answer is yes, but not at some of those 2021 pandemic era valuations. And that's because I think what I liked about the catalog boom is that it brought awareness to something that I think a lot of retail investors in the niche knew, but a lot of others were focusing on is that there's a lot of value to be had with owning some of these catalogs because there are certain artists that I think do have the potential to just feel similar to a evergreen stock or something like that that continues to provide consistent revenue that isn't correlated with the economy time and time again. But I think there's a few things that happened that people may have missed. One, there is a decay curve with all of those assets. And even as much as people want to tell you that the Beach Boys or Michael Jackson or the Beatles are timeless, everything has a decay curve. I mean, you could even go back, you know, decades, even people like Frank Sinatra or Elvis. I know that, you know, they had the movie that came out recently, but even folks like that, the discussions that are happening now about those people aren't anywhere near the type of discussions that you may have heard, at least when I was growing up. And that just shows you how much has changed in several decades since then. So, and I think the music listening would probably align with that as well. So there's that. And I just think that the valuations that were being paid for a lot of these things probably just wouldn't happen again. One, because interest rates are nowhere near as low as they were. But I think even regardless of interest rates, there was a lot of overpaying for those assets, just given the excitement. So smart on a lot of the artists for cashing out when they did and getting a lot of those returns, because at least from what we've seen from a lot of the reports, you've seen some of these financial time stories talking about hypnosis and hypnosis has, at least from what the returns have been from the their their catalog, has not been able to generate returns that a lot of the investors feel satisfied with and feel are in line with what they had, which is why I think you started to see more challenges there. There was a, almost an entire year period where the company didn't make an investment. And I think you've seen a lot of things ring true for others. There are still, that said, there are still catalog sales happening. It just may not happen at the particular dollar amount that people wanted. For instance, there was this Pink Floyd deal that was being talked about for a while, still being talked about. I believe they wanted $500 million, but based on some of the recent findings that it came out, the offers that they started to get were much smaller than they would have liked. So people are still interested in buying Pink Floyd. It may not be for the amount of money that the rights holders want to sell it for, but it's still, but there's still interest there. And I think that rigs true all the way up and down the board. So Listen, it was even just music investing 
the quarantine era of the pandemic led to a lot of sales for things happening that just probably wouldn't happen in the, the same way today. All right. Another question here is how does the globalization of hip hop influence its business and cultural impact? And this question came from chat GPT. Someone had submitted this question and then it came back as, oh, what do you think is a good question to ask about the business of music or the business of hip hop? So this is a fun one. I know I've written about it a few times, but for the sake of brevity, I'll tackle it in two ways. First, a lot of the Western hip hop artists were able to reach a much bigger audience as a result of globalization. And I think it made it easier for some of them to launch global brands as a result. I look at folks like Rihanna and folks like Jay-Z, look at some of the deals they've done with whether it's Ace of Spades for Jay-Z or the Fenty partnerships with Rihanna. This, these partnerships are tied in with European companies and there has to be some relevance for how big you are seen in Europe and other areas for those things to really have impact. And I think you saw that compound as well when you look at someone like Rihanna and Fenty Beauty being able to enter Africa and just given the ethos of that brand being able to be inclusive and have shades for all skin tones. It makes perfect sense to be able to do it in Africa, which you just think about the beauty industry. This is an entire continent of people, especially women with different complexion and skin tones that were largely overlooked by the many other major brands. So being able to have that influence there directly ties into an artist like Rihanna, you know, years, decades earlier, being able to tour in these places and being able to have her name out there being able to be seen in that way. So I think it affects it from that perspective. And of course, Jay-Z, Rihanna, more so people at like the top of that chain that are billionaires, but I think it really made a large impact on everyone else as well. On the other side, I think it's made a huge impact on international artists too, because we've seen in so many other places that hip hop has truly been that connective tissue. It's really been that gateway that can help raise and elevate the voice of the unheard or elevate the voice of the people that may not have either gotten a chance to get their word out there or can really speak to some of the challenges that are happening. And that's the way that hip hop started. You look at Public Enemy, they saw themselves as the black CNN. They were trying to voice what's really happening. You listen to songs like Grandmaster Flash and Message. This is a reality of, hey, this is what's going on in the streets of New York right now. And I think that if you listen to a lot of the hip hop from other areas and you hear things translated, you're hearing a lot of that. And even someone like Bad Bunny, how he speaks about some of the challenges and the oppression that's happening in Latin America or even things that are happening in Costa, not Costa Rica, in Puerto Rico specifically, or even how he spoke it out about disaster relief and even LGBTQ issues. It's not a coincidence that this is a hip hop artist that is doing this in their own language and that's happening. So I think we've just continued to see more and more influence and we'll continue to see how hip hop continue, continues to be such a big driver. And it's not just Latin America, you're seeing it in France and you're seeing it elsewhere. And as globalization of music more broadly has made it more possible for artists in local languages to truly rise up, I think you're going to see more and more of that coming from hip hop in a lot of those local language areas. All right. And the last question we have here is from Chakoy Bangs, who asked, do I notice similarities in emerging artists that follow the startup path to startups themselves? And I definitely do see a lot of those. And I like the question because I've been hearing so much from founders in the space and startups and other companies about two things. One, truly identifying and seeing artists as founders, not just as the 
creative talent behind what they're doing, but they are the ones that are the founding person of this company that if successful as it can be, it'll be a company built around them to then help focus and really benefit and speak to their strengths and address their weaknesses as well. No different than a startup would be. Who is that? Who are your co-founders that you're going to find that may not be on the talent side, but can help with the business? Or if you want to do it all yourself, who are the people that can be around you to at least help support in that way? And I think that you've seen some of those things happen uh, from time and time again. You look at you look at the start of Dreamville. I very much do look at Ibrahim Hamad and J. Cole as two people that are in line with being able to do that and continue to push forward, which I think is pretty, which I think has been pretty strong seeing how they've been able to do that over the past decade. Plus, you look at any of these record labels, and I think you're more likely than not going to see some type of tandem there. We talked about quality control. I think you see a lot of that too. And I think no different than a startup may try to get equity for what they're doing. I think you see I think you're seeing certain artists start to explore this as well, whether they're trying to explore it on chain with trying to sell tokens or they're trying to get a more formal structure in place. I recently had um, the investor, Cooper Turley, um, Cooper Trupa on the podcast, and he was talking about this as well and how he's investing in companies that are looking at this, investing in artists specifically so that he can take an equity stake out of the artists themselves and truly be a bit you know, less dilutive than a record label that may want to take 80% of the cut moving forward in exchange for an advance. So there's plenty of trade-offs there. I think it's an interesting thing to continue to explore, but I think that it is a sign of what that path to the future looks like. Because I think that artists are founders at the end of the day. How they go about that you know, is one thing or another. And who wears that CEO hat, whether it's someone that that artist proactively puts in place, or it's someone that ends up being at the record label that they signed to, or it's their manager. There's so many ways that these hats can be worn. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But wow, that was fun. That was quick. Bunch of rapid fire questions there, but this was really great. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you enjoyed the podcast this year as well. Definitely continue to share it uh, with anyone that you think would be interested. And let me know if you have any other questions. We can keep this in mind. I want to do these more regularly in general. So yeah, if you're listening and you enjoyed this episode, Send us a quick note, whether it's you know on social media or email, and then we'll keep them rolling so that the next time we do a podcast, we can uh, the next time we do a mailbag podcast, we can keep it rolling. Thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapolo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating, and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.